0: Welcome to season one of Reclaiming Jesus Now.
1: Ten conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis.
0: We're your host. I'm William Matthews. And I'm Alison Trowbridge. Today, we discuss chapter five, the power question.
1: So talk to us about power, Jim. What does it mean to be a person of faith, a person following Jesus in a culture that praises and idolizes power?
2: So this is the power question, but it could also be called the leadership question. There's a whole lot of stuff out there, as you both know, as young leaders, about what is good leadership. There are leadership seminars, there are every city has a leader council and all that. Well, what does Jesus say about leadership. Who is the greatest? That might be the question. Who is the greatest? So it says in the text, I love this, the kings of the Gentiles, that means the way of the world, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, he says, not so with you. And he talks about Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader one who serves. So that means the leader won't be the first in line for safety and help, but the one who helps everyone else get in the serving line. I think this deep contrast to the way of the world is actually the foundation for our ideas of public service. We say there will be public servants. Well, underneath that, Jesus is saying, well, let me take it further, like when he's having his last meal. And these disciples are actually competing with each other for who gets to sit next to him. And even their parents are lobbying Jesus. (laughs) Now, as a Little League baseball coach, I know all about this. Parents lobbying for whether their kids should play in the field, right? So parents and disciples and Jesus in the middle of this argument about leadership within his inner circle. This is his circle. He says, let me show you something. And he washes their feet. There's a long way between washing somebody's feet and good public service and bad public service. In other words, you can't go far enough here and serving others in the way Jesus talks about leadership. This is a huge contrast. So how do we understand leadership when it's being put forward as only winning and losing? I I was really struck reading this book and
0: reading your section on foot washing. Here's why. Because I instantly was getting flashbacks to my childhood. I was a part of a church that practiced foot washing as a sacrament. And I remember... Growing up as a little boy, and we would go down to the church basement. All the men, they'd separate the men and the women, and they would line these chairs up, almost like musical chairs, like back to back. And they would put these bowls, these basins, uh, on the floor, and one by one, men would sit in the chair. and I remember as a as a as a young boy, like like five, six, seven years old, having to like wash the feet of these older men. Wow! (laughs) And as a kid, I kind of hated it. I'm like, this is creepy. This is kind of (laughs) weird. But actually looking back, what I realized what was so powerful about it, even for as a little boy was I wasn't simply washing their feet. They would come and wash my feet. Mm. And I remember as a little boy that registering with me, like we would sit in this church basement and we wouldn't talk, but we would sing hymns. Uh, Just, I mean, this is in Southwest Detroit and southwestern church of god like very very humble salt of the earth like men and we would sing hymns and wash each other's feet and i remember as a little boy just recognizing that not only was i called to serve these men but they were also called to serve me wow. and as a little boy knowing that this community loved me and accepted me and would fight and to protect me was deeply reassuring but also I think that's where I truthfully got my sense of dignity and worth and value was to be supported by this group of black men who loved me and my little body and said, you're okay just the way you are. Um, And so I was deeply touched when I read that in your book, because I felt like it's nothing about that feels sexy. Nothing about it feels um, grabs at money and power. It's the very opposite. It's the lowly of the lowliest, the poor of the poor saying we're going to support each other and love each other. And this is the leadership of Christ. So thank you for, for putting that in your book. Thank you for highlighting that ancient practice.
2: There's another story in the book, uh, which I'll, since you mentioned your story, but Will Jones, who used to work with me at Sojourners, Appalachian white kid, never had a bathroom in his house, first won the graduate college. Then he became the president of Bethany College, incoming president in Kansas. And as president, the first thing he did at the first presidential event was to wash the feet of some of the students, including black students, white students, men, women. And it was such a dramatic thing. They were attacked by white supremacists. And his family was, was targeted, and his house, and the campus— because it was such a dramatic thing to have a, an incoming president who was a white man wash the feet of white, black men and women students. It's a powerful example of what this leadership is supposed to be. But it really is dramatic. It's really, as you say, it's kind of, wow. And we did this in Sojourners every Thursday during Holy Week. We washed each other's feet having living with each other for a year and all the stuff that happens and all the things you are mad about with somebody or they're mad with you about washing, foot washing was a very powerful thing. You're right about that.
1: One of the things that stood out to me the most in in this chapter was was when you wrote about Pope Francis's theology of dirty feet. Oh, that was so beautiful. Will you share a little bit more about that with us?
2: Well, my favorite story about Francis, there's lots of stories uh, washing the feet of young Muslim women in in a prison, all of that stuff. But it was the first night he was Pope. He was in this little guest room, right? Imagine your first night as Pope. (laughs) He's sleeping in a guest room and he comes out in the morning. Here's this guard and he says, oh, who are you? He says, I'm your guard. Oh, okay. Looks around. Where's your chair? (laughs) Oh, my commandante says, we're not allowed to sit while we're guarding. Francis says, well, have you heard there's a new commandant? Wait here. He went inside and brought back out a chair. And he said, have you eaten? (laughs) He says, no, my commandant. He says, wait here. (laughs) He goes out and he gets... Two sandwiches, a second chair, and they sit, having a sandwich together in two chairs. So here is this closed and judging church trying to become an open and encountering church mm. with he and his guard having a sandwich to, together. I have never seen any leader impact Washington more yeah. than when Pope Francis came visit. Now, it didn't change the town forever, that's for sure. But those two days were miraculous Mm. in how one person changed the whole ethos, the conversation, the spirit of that town for just a couple of days.
1: And his idea of dirty shoes being... Well,
2: he always was wondering about his priest's shoes. He would look at his priest's shoes. And if they weren't dirty... (laughs) he didn't like their shoes, and he thought they weren't doing their job by being out in the mud, in the dirt, serving the people they were trying to priest. And he always preferred the priests who had the dirty shoes, which showed him they were out serving the people like they were supposed to.
1: Such a beautiful picture of, of what servant leadership looks like and and such a contrast to State of the Union today?
2: I'm thinking again of young people. Yeah. Because like it or not, presidents and other leaders are are role models for young people. So when your leader says, it's who is the best, the biggest, the richest, the most powerful, that's what a leader is. And then young people say, okay, I'll try and do that too. But when they see a leader really tries to be a public servant. Now, no leaders I've ever met in politics are perfect, that's for sure. They're all very ambitious, or so they wouldn't get to where, where they are. But there is a leadership style that you can see in politics, in business, where you've worked for such a long time. So what's a leadership style, ethos, a spirit? What's conveyed to people as a leader? And Jesus says, well, uh, the best way is to show you, let me wash your feet. It's it's interesting because
0: uh, I was born in the early 80s and I'm thinking of back to, during that time, back during that time, my leaders were the people in my community. And I just don't think celebrity culture was as prevalent as it is now or even access to that. So I wasn't infatuated 24-7 with what the celebrity is wearing today or what they're doing today or who they're with today through social media apps, which I feel like we tend to look up to those people now. But back to me in the 80s and the 90s, it was very much, oh, no, it was the people who were the everyday heroes, who were the people who I want to actually be like them. I want to be a teacher. I actually, when I was young, I wanted to be a teacher because I admired my teachers, right? Like, And I wanted to sing because everyone in my community sang. And I ended up becoming a recording artist, but like so that went out over teaching. But um, yeah, that was the model was these people who had given themselves to service. And you say in your book that one of the greatest moral fights we're in right now is service versus tyranny. Can you expound on that a little bit more, like just the the conflict of those two
2: that we're kind of currently facing? The points you make about your neighborhood is really good because, especially in uh, a lot of poor communities, I think, especially in my experience, in black communities, uh, the leaders that emerge are the ones that are like the glue that holds a neighborhood together, mm-hmm. and they don't have to be celebrities. In fact, they're often not, but they're known as the ones who um, who really set the ethos, and they discipline kids on the street as yeah. well as in their own families. Yeah right? And they show how you should do this. Uh, Living in lots of those neighborhoods, I have felt eldered by a lot of those, uh, particularly black women, who are often not um, hierarchical leaders, but in the community, they have incredible authority. And they often exercise that authority. And they really hold the place together. That's what Jesus meant by, I think, this servant leadership. Our situation in the United States is not unique. We have autocratic would-be strong men. I would call them weak men, but they want to be strong men all over the world. They're rising, and they all like each other. They like their leadership styles. They They all want to be Like each other. And none of them are known as servants. They're known as corrupt. Mm. They're known as uh, unprincipled. They're known as perpetual liars. Uh, They're known as people who are serving themselves, people who are serving their own wealth and power, but not serving those around them. So tyrants are the Gentiles who lord it over the people completely, who basically are undemocratic and and who don't want to be held even to account, let alone the public service. So we have now a global problem of tyranny rising up. And in the Reclaiming Jesus Declaration, which I haven't quoted much yet, but let me just Here, these are these elders who say this about power and leadership. We believe Christ's way of leadership is servanthood, not domination. Therefore, we reject any moves toward autocratic political leadership and authoritarian rule. We believe authoritarian political leadership is a theological danger. That threatens democracy and the common good, and we will resist it Mm. Wow! as leaders. Mm. We will resist it. One of the strongest statements we made in that declaration was we will resist that kind of leadership. I want to highlight this because we often don't hear people
0: making the case theologically for democracy, or at least in a way that is... Truthful. And you put a quote in the book from C.S. Lewis, which I I, was just going to raise that. Yes. No, it was my favorite. No, it was my
1: favorite moment in the chapter.
0: Yeah, mine, too. I deeply resonated with it. Do you want to read it?
1: Uh, Sure. Yeah. Lewis is talking about this idea of democracy and, and says that a great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share of the government and he goes on to say that the real reason for democracy is just the reverse mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows and i just that that one was such a punch in the gut mm. as far as you know i think we we get on this this false sense of believing that democracy is because we're all so good we all ought to be contributing and sharing and and instead you know, it's it's about not allowing power to go
0: unchecked because because absolute power corrupts. Correct. And yeah. and I love that because it is a, a pure recognition of our fallen humanity. Like I've, I've watched these hearings that happen on C-SPAN with, you know, different government officials. And when somebody a strong leader like a Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris or different ones begin to or Katie Porter, begin to check these <laughs> men and women that are in these cabinet positions of power, they often, like, take offense of, like, how dare you remotely challenge me? Like, I, I watch these people often from the, from the Trump administration kind of have this air of, like, why do you just assume I'm being corrupt? And it's like they've kind of missed the point, yeah. which is we're all fallen. Even if we have a great record, we should be allowing checks and balances and accountability that maybe if I do have a conflict of interest. I just saw recently Elizabeth Warren confronted someone about a conflict of interest about Mm. millions of dollars he was getting from a personal contractor that he was dealing with now in his government position. And he like took offense to the idea that he could possibly make a decision that would have a conflict of interest for him. And she's like, no, like we... We are fallen, right, 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 <laughs> right, right,
1: right, yeah. right. And and this is the this is the point, though. This is why we have different, you know, the the judicial branch is meant to be a power check for the executive branch, exactly. which is meant to be a power check for the for Congress. And 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 I think our current administration is it, we're moving away from this idea of a balance of power and i would love your thoughts jim on what is this trajectory that we're moving in right now what is what does it look like if the current administration wins another term in 2020 what what where are we going towards in relation to power and that sense of of power being unchecked
2: take your phrase you both use the phrase just now checks and balances are checks and balances just our political preference or our Political philosophy, or is it rather theological, as you just pointed out from C.S. Lewis? When C.S. Lewis says, "I am a Democrat, believer in democracy because I believe in the fall of man," which you just pointed out, Reinhold Niebuhr, I love that quote too. American public theologian says, "Yeah, in the children of light and children of darkness, he says, humankind's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but humankind's inclination to injustice." makes democracy necessary. Oh,
1: it's so good.
2: So that means checks and balances. This is a theological necessity, not a political preference only. This is what we need to do to check. Absolute power does corrupt absolutely. So in a democratic system, you try and make sure that doesn't happen. So you see now already a president who has marginalized the Congress. The con- Congress is a branch of government. So when you refuse subpoenas, when you refuse documentation, when you say no to everything Congress asks you, or when you want an executive order to put a question in the census, asking for people's citizenship or non-citizenship to frighten immigrants from filling out a census, and then you threaten to defy the Supreme Court. And I think just came just short of that, where some people said, you can't go that far. In a second term, Donald Trump would defy the Supreme Court, in my view. He would reject any checks and balances to his power. And what this next election is... Apart from any of the policy questions on which we can disagree, the next election will be a referendum on democracy itself, a referendum on whether checks and balances will be resilient or whether we will lose all of our checks and balances to executive power that's what's at stake. Not just policy issues and differences, but democracy itself, which depends on holding leaders accountable to be public servants instead of, as you asked before, tyrants. We see tyranny in the making here in this country and around the world. And so this now is really about what C.S. Lewis and Reinhold Niebuhr warned us against, We need democracy because of human nature, because of the fallenness that we all participate in. So how can we prevent tyranny? How can we demand service? That's a theological protest for us, not just a political one. We're talking about the nature of power and who wields
0: power and who has power. Often in our society, it is men who hold lots of power. It's funny because we kept correcting yourself because we were talking about the fall of man. Well, obviously it's bigger than just one gender. But like it is often men who hold those that power over women. And we live in such a heavy patriarchal society. So I kind of want to open this up to Allison a bit to as somebody that as a man to I have I carry a level of privilege that women often don't experience. I get Benefit of the doubt oftentimes, I'm often believed more. I'm treated as more special, maybe because I can be a breadwinner or I'm the head of a household. How has this season been for, do you think women in general who have either credible accusations against not just this president, but also a real indictment towards patriarchy that is often uh, victimized women?
1: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking that. I think one of the, the most surreal moments in the election was when those kind of wire tapes came out in the last week of Trump talking about just grabbing women by their genitals. And I just remember seeing this and thinking, well, surely there's no way. I mean, similar to saying, well, there's no way we would elect someone who is that racist. It's like there's no one... No way that we as a country would elect someone who's that misogynistic. And to see that that was not enough to not only dissuade the average American from voting for him, but church leaders really had no moral abhorrence to it and and dismissed it as locker room talk and a man being a man. And it just, it was this revelation of what we as a country and I'd say at times women included, were willing to stomach from our leaders and accept as normal. And that sends a message broadly as to what is credible, acceptable talk from men towards women. And that that sends ripple effects out into the culture around both how women are treated secondary to men, to abuse, to even rape culture, at the far end of that, and and so it's a very strange time to see us on one hand making so much progress around things like the Me Too movement and women finding their voice to be able to hold that power to account and and call out the Harvey Weinstein's of the world. In the same news cycle, we're we're led by a man who operates with a very similar worldview towards women and women's role in society. And so I think that gives us a sense of cultural whiplash around the role of women. And and I go so far as to look at the role of women in the church and how far the church has lagged behind society as a whole uh, around seeing women as equal to men. And To see so many churches and pastors that I love and admire still say women can't be pastors, women can't be elders, women's voice is not equal to men when they're talking about God, it it truly leaves me baffled, and
2: I mourn it. If sexism and sexual harassment and sexual assault are all sequentially related, and they create a permission structure for that culture, isn't there also a system, a structure, which allows, gives permission for that kind of behavior? And even how legal systems that protect predatory men, who are never prosecuted, almost never, for these assaults, a power structure, and a culture that allows the crimes to happen in the first place. And as you say, not just in society, but in the churches, bishops, priests, and let's say it, megachurch pastors who have been allowed to behave in these ways. It's not just the incidents, but the structure itself, yes. the systems that allow and give permission for and protect the predatory behavior on the part of men, particularly men in power.
1: And it is an abuse of power at its core and even more reprehensible in a place that's meant to be a place of safety like a faith community.
2: And let's make sure that people know we believe that sexual predators, that kind of behavior, is bipartisan.
1: Yes, completely.
2: And since you mentioned it, I will respond to that moment, the Hollywood Access tapes. Yeah. And the debate right after that, where a candidate, Hillary Clinton, was really kind of silenced to really speak to that because her opponent, Donald Trump, had assembled all of the accusers of her own husband. mm Bill Clinton, in the front row of that debate, Hmm. who was also a sexual predator. And that silenced the issue that should not have been silenced at that moment. Hmm. Predatory behavior on the part of men is very bipartisan. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting how
0: abusive that behavior was um, to have a man credibly accused of sexual assault line up a group of women who had accused another person. I, I, I don't think I, I remember watching it. My brain just didn't compute. I didn't. You're right. I think it silenced a lot. I think it silenced her, but I also think it silenced a lot of us, and it made us afraid. But it's it's the truth thing. There is no truth. It's that that's what. Now that I, I'm connecting what our last. <laughs> Podcast was about, like, that's what that moment was, was how dare you say anything about me? What about this guy? Because you know what? There is no truth. It's whatever I say. like That's what that moment was. I just got that now.
2: Mm. Wow. And like you said earlier, William, how it makes you feel as a black man when the message all the time is you don't count. You don't count as much. You're not as valuable. You're not as important. So Allison, during judiciary hearings, which we just went through, women felt traumatized yet again because the testimony of a woman who was talking about how she was assaulted was kind of overturned again. And all over the country, I felt women just feeling... Traumatized again, all the women who have been assaulted, which is an enormous number of women, and there's no woman who doesn't have a friend, or a sister, or a mother it's about who one in wasn't four. assaulted. So how yeah. do how does that make you feel as a woman when all of this stuff goes on every day, uh, not the official levels of power, and it gets just passed over?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's silencing is the best word for it. It's to say that. That women don't have a voice, and if they do have a voice, their voice doesn't count as much. Their testimony doesn't count as much. They're, you put a woman up next to a man, and a man's testimony carries greater weight and credence than the woman's. And those stereotypes are are subtle but pervasive into the the business world and the workforce, into the church and ministry, into... Uh, you know, every aspect of, of our lives. And then you see these extremes um, that only reinforce those those stereotypes and that silencing. And it's, it's hard to see. It's hard to watch. And it, it was especially hard to see women and friends of mine who were women set these things aside and say, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay. That's how men are that's the norm it's acceptable i'll accept it he can be our president i will vote for him to be our president that was really really hard for me as a woman to wrap my head and heart around
2: this whole book says let's go back to jesus and when you go back to how jesus treated women in a very patriarchal culture yeah in quite a different way
1: it was revolutionary
2: and how leaders who were women We're in his inner circle and the testimony to the resurrection. The single most important thing about my faith was made by women. Yeah. So, again, let's go back to Jesus here. And we're talking about a patriarchal culture that just can't, we just can't be silent in the face. The incidents are one thing, the cover-ups are another Mm. And the covering up of sexism and sexual harassment and sexual assault by a patriarchal culture, covering up that has got to be be, be revealed. And I'd like to be more like Jesus here.
0: Mm. Yeah, ultimately, I think I want to live in a world where those that are the most vulnerable, particularly women and girls— are seen, are heard, are believed, are are treated as full citizens and full humans and everything that entails and the voice and the authority that entails. Um, and I feel like we failed at it. I feel like I failed at it. I feel like I'm constantly having to relearn what it means to believe women, to listen to women, to take their word into account. And there's so many ways in which we as men have... Um, silenced them, have told them their feelings don't matter, have said that their voice isn't welcomed, or moments where I've laughed and said the joke, or where where I've allowed other men to talk about women in sexually demeaning ways. And the more I've been listening and learning and growing, the more I am realizing how much I don't know. So I need to see like Jesus. I need to be like Jesus and value women like Jesus valued women and even just sitting here talking to you Allison and realizing oh I need Allison's voice in my life I need her voice in my life to help maybe see another side or another perspective that I don't currently see and women and people who have lived on the underside of a patriarchal society I think what do they call it, the preferential option of the poor I love that that phrase in terms of those who have experienced the underside um, ha, are the first to be able to enter into, um, seeing real seeing reality mm-hmm. and seeing the un, like the truth of us. Um. So
2: yeah.
1: There's there's thanks for that. There there's kind of that that joke of you know if only women were leaders of countries, we wouldn't have war. What would the world <laughs> look like, right? You know. Uh, but it's also to your to your point. It's like you you get half the world being systemically objectified by the other half. Yeah. And and the reason the race question and the gender question go so close to to one another is because both involve dehumanization. Yeah. And in on one side we're saying one race is less and on the other side we're saying one gender is worthy of objectification, we can call it an object. We can value it for as though it were an object and not a soul carrying the image of God. And so I think so much of of what it means to move forward as a culture is, you know, it's how do we build longer tables and pull up more seats at the table and give women more voice in our politics, in our businesses, in our churches, specifically women of color, I think is If women of color have the strongest voice in society, we are going to right so many, so many of the current wrongs and heal so many of the current wounds. Um, So for all of us to be looking for ways to to elevate and give give voice to women, minorities and specifically women of color, I think is going to would set us forward so far.
0: I agree. Listen, I'm on the team. So
2: you, pre- you are preaching <laughs> to the choir. I'm well, on the I'm on the if, team. If we believe in the image of God, God created us in God's image, male and female. We either believe that or we don't, which means how white people talk to each other when when people of color aren't even listening becomes very important. And when men talk to each other, when women aren't listening, becomes very important. And I've said before, for me, this is critical. Not just, I don't have daughters, I have sons. How my sons talk about this together, talk to their, they're both athletes. How athletes and this whole locker room talk thing. Well, is a new generation of men, our new generation of men willing to challenge that locker room talk and dugout talk? We have conversations about this at home. I overheard one the other day between my two boys they were talking about um, an incident that came up at high school. And uh, and my younger son said to my older son, Well, um, sometimes in these conversations, you know, there's kind of a generalizing about men when all men don't want to be that or do that. Or And my older son said, Well, that's true. People that are hurt are human and, and react in all kinds of ways. But, you know men are generally guilty of a lot of that stuff. <laughs> so, awesome. you, you know, so let's accept the fact that there's a lot of general guilt here and we got to be the kind of men that stand up to that stuff when we're just with other guys and white people have to stand up to racism when we're just with other white people. And that's, I think, uh, taking this to a much, to a much deeper place. If we believe in what you just said, about the image of God. Often people who are oppressed, vulnerable, marginalized, what they most want to hear is or know is that they're seen. Yeah. I see you. I see you. When someone's washing your feet, you know they see you. That's why what Jesus is saying here about leadership about power is so powerful when ultimately we're called to serve as he is serving and the ultimate example of that was washing the feet of his disciples for who is greater the one who is at the table or the one who serves i among you i'm the one who serves that's leadership development if we're listening to Jesus, period.
1: The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews.
0: Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners, faith in action for social justice.
1: Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres.
0: To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net.
1: That's book.sojo.net.
0: And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review. That makes all
1: the difference. Thanks for listening.
2: God bless you.